City. It's your man, Big Pat, the voice of your Charlotte Hornets. And you're listening to the All Hornets Podcast Network, presented by Sports Illustrated. Everybody Googles everything, especially potential customers or employers, and a business or personal online reputation can make or break you. If negative search results or reviews are impacting you, Webamax is here to help. Our proven process restores your online reputation quickly and effectively, and it matters. Don't let negative results control your narrative. Visit GoWebamax.com and fill out a brief confidential form to see how we can help. Remember, if you aren't paying attention to your online reputation, someone else is. GoWebamax.com before history is written it's played before it's frozen in time it's fought one shift at a time before it's etched in silver it's carved in ice what happens next will last forever The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. All Hornets listeners, very exciting announcement before the start of this podcast. The All Hornets podcast has been nominated for Best Team Podcast by the Sports Podcast Awards. These are the kind of premier sporting podcast awards in the industry, and we are one of only two independents against 12 other team podcasts from across a range of sports in different countries. Um... We absolutely need your help because it's a public vote. Um, so please support us if you enjoy listening to the show. We, you know, some of these podcasts have massive leadership uh, listenerships. So if you listen to this, we need every single one of you to help vote for us. And Chase is going to tell you exactly how you can do that right now. So listeners, you are the reason that we are here and we are able to be eligible for awards like this. And you are going to the reason why we win an award like this. You go to sportspodcastgroup.com slash sports underscore category. You find the best team podcast category. You're going to register on that website, sign up for an account because you have to be logged in to vote. And then you're going to vote for all Hornets podcast network, the bottom left of the two columns there. I mean, we're up against... Talking Giants from John Boy Media, probably the most popular New York Giants podcast on the market. A couple of podcasts from The Athletic, uh, CLNS Media about the Boston Celtics. There's so many big networks that we're up against here. And it's just me and James and a couple other people at, at Sports Illustrated running the show here. So we, to, to us, this is a great achievement already. But if you guys are able to boost us up here, get us this victory, it would mean the world to me and James. Thank you all for listening, and if you go vote, thank you again. Thank you even more. So we appreciate you all. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, James Plarite. The Hornets are coming off a win, and to join me for the first part of the show is the one and only Chase Whitney. Thank you for the intro music, James. I'm doing very well. Uh, I'm excited for the podcast that we've got today. I think we've got quite a host of uh, good topics to talk about here, so I'm excited to get going. Absolutely, we do. Um, you you saw, and some other people might have seen. I decided to find the show a little bit of news last night about. Um, I am I am going to become a dad, so that's some scary, exciting, scary news that's happening. Um, yeah, a lot of people have already seen, but if you're not on Twitter, you probably haven't. Um, me and my wife are expecting a baby boy in July, um, so I'm officially doubtful or out for summer league uh, this year. Um, so in terms of the podcast, uh, we are hoping nothing is going to change. The plan is that 
I'm still going to keep trying to do the podcast as much as I did, uh, doing all my Hornets work. So this shouldn't affect any of your listening, apart from I might just go on some more random tangents and have some moments of parent corner where I share anecdotes from from the week of being a dad. Uh, But other than that, everything will be the same. Well, I think I speak for both myself and all the listeners when I say congratulations to both you and your wife. Uh, We're all glad that there's going to be one more Hornets fan out there in the universe to collectively, quote unquote, enjoy uh, all these seasons that we've gone that we've gone through so far. So what if, you know, like sometimes like kids just like don't follow the team that their parents support. Like, What if what if you grew up? What would be the worst team he could support? What if you like definitely the Lakers? You think the Lakers? What about the Heat? I feel like there's a little rivalry. Oh, that's true. Lakers or Heat would both be pretty unfortunate. Can you just imagine, like, no, I, I want to support the Lakers. I'm like, no, that is the wrong answer. That is not what you do. You're like, oh, uh, actually, their games are on really, really late, so That's you true. probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> so that would that might be a good selling pitch right there. That would imagine if you were a Lakers fan, you'd be up at like four in the morning watching these games. That was a well, good I, thing you picked the the Hornets back in the day, and that it is it Dick's is a great sporting thing. goods in Alabama. <laughs> it is, and um. Another thing to add as well is we are we we have a name picked out, but we're not showing the name. But one thing I'm showing with the listeners, this is my my family don't even know this. Chase, ooh, here we go. Is is that the, there is a Charlotte player who's played for the franchise who shares the name with? So that's all I'm gonna. And if anyone can guess it out there and and tweet me when we're announcing it, I will send you all sorts of praise because it's like. Let's put it this way. It's not mainstream, <laughs> but this person has played games for Charlotte in the NBA and shares a name. So there's a little bit of a trivia time teaser for people. Um, I'm curious just to get people randomly tweeting me random Charlotte players now from, from the yeah. past. <laughs> yeah, right. It doesn't necessarily narrow it down because there have been a lot of people that have played have. for the Hornets. Uh, but I mean, it will then it will be interesting, you know, cross-referencing once we all actually find out and then. See if anybody guesses it. Absolutely, but um, yeah, for this week's show, um, we're gonna we're gonna kind of be looking at James Butknight, uh, career high forty four points. We're gonna be touching on that. We've not talked about James Butknight that much this year, so we want to give him give him his flowers when they're due. And then also we're gonna talk on Nick Richards and Dennis Smith Jr. And that's in part one here. And then in part two, I'm gonna be joined by Des Johnson. You will have heard him on the All Hornets Podcast Network on the Greensboro Swarm. Swarm Report, where he's been doing a great Get to Know You series with players, coaches, staff from the Greece of Swarm. He's going to talk, join me to talk MJ ownership, which is a big item of news, uh, which broke on, on uh, the first Thursday of the NCAA tournament. Um, but, Chase, let's start. James Booknight, 44 points. Um, we've really not spoken about the former lottery pick much this year, who had the very turbulent off-season with the wrist injury, the uh, the driving charges, being arrested, whatever, passed out in his car with a gun. There was all sorts of things. I, I'm, I'm even sorry I brought that up because this is supposed to be positive on book night. Um, you've been able to catch up on some of the highlights of the 44 points. I guess just what's what stood out from you just from watching that, that performance? Um, yeah, what did you see? Well, I mean, it was a very encouraging game all around. It's a career high, 44 points. He had one 40-point game in college, but obviously this is the highest point game that he's scored as a professional so far. 
Uh, he also had 10 rebounds in the game. He's been a really aggressive rebounder with the Swarm lately. Uh, three double-digit rebound games since February 25th. Uh, mm-hmm. It's encouraging to see him impacting the game in you know, other areas similar to what he'd you know, ideally be doing in Charlotte other than just scoring, you know, rebounding, passing a little bit, which is something else that he's been good at. Uh, the, uh, the real story with that game, though, he made 11 threes. He was 11 yeah. for 16 from three. Right out of the gates, just absolutely on fire. He hit a couple like in the first few minutes, uh, just really never stopped throughout the rest of the game. It was pretty consistent scoring through the whole four quarters. Uh, overall, with the swarm, he's shooting 44.1% from three on 7.4 attempts per game in 23 games. So, very large sample size. Uh, he's made a total of 75 threes in those games. Uh, off the dribble, he looks pretty good. Uh, the off the catch, though, is what really impressed me. Uh, with the rhythm and flow. Uh, do you have uh, any any quick notes on the game as well? Well, I, I looked at each one of those threes that hit of those 11. I decided to chart them as I was going through. He hit five catch and shoots. Um, I'd say two of those were open, right? The rest yeah. were like contested, someone closing out or someone maybe ste- stepping like a, a meter too far off. He hit three pull-ups and these are, you know, transition-y pull-ups where he kind of like dribbled into it and he hit three step-back threes which were all like heavily contested having to create room in like a sidestep or a, or a genuine kind of like step classic step back where you move uh fading backwards but that's the thing that really impressed me with these three is these this is not just like i don't know the the type of like standing in a corner getting a wide open three and he hits them like these are really mixing how he's been able to to impact from beyond the arc i mean the other team knew he was hot right after the, the first second quarter and he was still able to get to his shots and you talked about the attempt rate has gone way up from three the percentage has gone way up and we talked about this on the podcast probably about a month ago about how he was shooting a better ball recently and that could be his like key weapon to, to tune in on and you can just see the impact you look at his total shooting percentage last year it was at 50 percent. this year it's up to 58 percent, and he's not shooting that much better from from two-point range uh or from or from the free throw line but it's just those three that three-point shot efficiency is just up from 30 percent last year um so he's he's really dialed that in and yeah it's just been great to see the confidence which I think we definitely seemed it disappeared early in the season, right? And he's now been in Greensboro for a, a good period of time now. What I love is that there's just been no news. There's been no drama. He's just been getting on, playing with the Swarm, training with the Swarm. And I'm hoping that level of consistency and that stable structure has been good for him. And you know, we, we don't, we're not going to get updates, right? But I, I'm hoping this improved play is a sign that he's, been able to kind of have a more stable basketball environment and he's been able to kind of contribute to the team. Yeah. And I was thinking the same thing is he's really just been down. He's because over the last probably month and a half, two months, I would say he has just pretty much strictly been with Greensboro. He hasn't been with the Hornets even to sit on the bench and get DNPs really at all. The last time he played double digit minutes in a game was November 28th of 2022. Uh, against the Celtics when the Hornets lost by 45 and were down by massive amounts like the entire game. Ever since then, he's been playing, you know, three minutes, four minutes, five minutes of garbage time in a couple games in December. And then the last most recent game was January 24th, which even right now is almost two months ago. So he's been with Greensboro very consistently. And I think you're right that that's been 
much more of like a stable thing for him getting like big minutes actually playing a lot being like a leading member a leading scorer of the team uh he's always had plenty of scoring talent and athleticism but really now with the swarm it looks like that full package is kind of coming together he's been a pretty effective playmaker when his looks get taken away there were a couple times where the teams would close out on him really hard for those threes because multiple a few times he would just take him and hit him anyway but yeah. there were a couple other times where he would uh, you know up fake dribble into it and pass it with the open guy you know either get an assist or the play would just keep going and greensboro would have a good possession or score or whatever uh, i mean he, he's limited those avoidable turnovers as well that we talked about a lot last season when he would play with greensboro that like above the break just making like a really slow like non-crisp pass that ended up in a breakaway layup for the other team that doesn't really happen anymore and now he's shooting a super high percentage from three which I mean, I can't really think of another thing that we'd want to see from him other than being like a really, really efficient three-point shooter. Like that can't be understated, like how valuable that would be like in the Hornets backcourt if he becomes like a really consistent player from beyond the arc. So the thing that I really like, and you mentioned a couple of things there about the rebound and the turnovers, uh, he he is playing a role player style in Greensboro which is what he needs to do in the NBA. Cause he's, he's just not going to be a, yeah, you've got free license to kind of like roam an offense and do what you want, or do what you want and self create. That's not what it's going to be. And I think he's realized that, you know, his three point rate has gone up. Um, his defensive rebound rate has doubled. So again, like we talk about what the Clifford things, defensive rebounding and turnovers, his defensive rebounding rate is doubled from 10% to 20%. His turnovers are, Still higher than I want them to be. Uh, that's still, for me, like one of the biggest things. But they are down from last year from 16.2% to 14.5%. Um, his steals and his blocks are down, but I don't mind that so much because actually his fouling rate is way down. And his assist rate is way down as well, from 23.5% to 16%, which you look at that and go, oh, he's struggling to create as much. But it's just a different role. Last year in Greensboro, he was putting shots up from everywhere, inefficiently handing the ball a ton, and he's now playing just a, a part of a role on a team of five. And he's maybe not going to have, and, and on this occasion, he did have a big explosive scoring game. Um, but yeah, he's not going to get as many reps doing everything, but he's finding ways to try and impact the game without just being a primary offensive option like he was, was in college. And you can really see those Clifford areas of coaching emphasis come through in the statistics. And that shows me that he's buying in, which is just the most important thing like he he is adapting he is learning he's not just coming out and doing the same thing as last year he's realized that he can't do it that way do you think that his jumper looks to any different at all when we're when i was watching those highlights back i think it looks like maybe not necessarily a little bit slower but he seems like he has a much more like Mm. fluid and rhythm and in rhythm release i would say because there there are a couple i mean we've mentioned it a couple times now there are some of those are so contested and he just kind of catches the ball, turns his shoulders, squares to the rim, and shoots right over whoever the defender is in front of him. And it really just doesn't make a difference at all. I feel like he has a much more – maybe if the if the jumper isn't any different, it's just the way that he feels – like the confidence that he feels going into it, and he just rises up much stronger, more on balance, more frequently. And then that has in turn resulted in a massive jump in efficiency. It's a good question. I've um... – you know, I need to sit down and watch some old Yukon film alongside the Green Swarm stuff. Um, I, I actually saw one clip of him shooting, I, I don't know where, on social media, at Yukon. And I, I immediately thought, 
oh, it looks a little bit different, but I, I didn't like watch it enough and then go back to compare to figure out why or where. But I, I, yeah, I'd be interested to see that as well. Um, because I mean, that was one of the knocks on him coming out, right? Is, is he going to be a knockdown shooter from outside? And actually it's the, the rim scoring, the mid range scoring, the self creation, the turnovers, um, you know, the defensive foul rate was like skyrocketly high. Those are the areas that he's really struggled. Um, I'm, I'm curious. So he's playing well. The Hornets season's coming to a close here. Um, there are two ways of thinking here. One is, well, he's playing well. Let's bring him up with Charlotte now. Let's get him with the last, whatever, 10 games of the season with the Hornets. Alternatively, there is actually, let him finish out the Swarm season. Okay, there's three games left. After that, bring him back to Charlotte. I think there's five games after that. And then maybe he could play some sort of role in those last five games. And it would be really nice if he could finish the season on somewhat of a positive note with some positive momentum he could take into the offseason. Where, where do you fall on that? I firmly land, you know, let him finish out the G League season with Greensboro. Like you said, only three games. You might as well just get those three games of like high level, you know, more top end of the rotation reps before he goes back up to Charlotte and is inevitably coming off the bench playing like fewer minutes a game, more like 12 to 18 rather than 24 to 30 or whatever it is that he can play with Greensboro. Um, I, I think that would be a much better plan. Maybe the last five games he's, I don't know if he like takes Bryce McGowan's place, but gets similar minutes to what Bryce McGowan's would get. I'll be honest. I, I'd actually be happy with that. Like, yeah, I, I mean, I, I know... wouldn't, it wouldn't make too much of a difference to me either. It's just five games. Yeah, and I know we've been big McGowan's fans and Buck skeptics. Like, I don't want this to become across uh, like that we've always loved Jim's Buck Night because we've, you know, we've shared our concerns on here. And like, look at the results so far. I think those concerns have been, you know, fair, fair enough to share. So I, I don't, but like, I would be happy with, you know, looking to try and say to, to McGowan's, look, you had quite a lot of opportunity the last 20, 25 games. So five games to go. We we want to lean into Buck Knight to see how he looks out there. And and yeah, there's obviously ways you can play him together and things like that. But Clifford has always said this, you've got to put young guys in a position to succeed. Like if you put Buck Knight out there with Dennis Smith Jr., Bryce McGowan's, JT Thor and Kai Jones, like that's just not a team with anywhere near like enough balance and offensive weaponry for to like put Buck Knight in a position to succeed. Um, so I like I imagine they'd be more likely to put him out there with you know sharing the floor with the likes of Kelly Oubre, maybe Terry Rozier, like stuff like this. Um, but I, I mean I agree with you. That's the way I'd lean. Um, let him finish out that season there, bring up the last five games. But but I really would like to see him get some minutes here because the the Hornets have decisions to make this summer, this off season. Um, we've talked about it on this podcast before. Uh, we talked about it in the debate show who is least likely to become back. James Knight is in the running right there. And if he can have a, like, if you can see him for those last five games after him having a better kind of end of the season in Greensboro, that could be pretty impactful when it comes to thinking, is there still something we can tap into here? Right. I mean, he has that team option for his contract coming up this summer. I mean, it's a four and a half million dollar option. That's not necessarily cheap not for somebody that wouldn't be in the rotation. So if the Hornets don't think that there's any chance that he would be in the rotation next year, it's likely that they would decline that and just, you know, get out of his rookie contract two years early, which would be not unprecedented, but pretty rare for a player that's drafted as highly as he was. Um, but of course, the, the, he could show something that would make them not want to do that in these last five games here. And 
if he if obviously I would I'm not rooting against that the Hornets getting as many you know good players with either value on the court or as you know tradable players that could provide more value to another team than they do in Charlotte that is perfectly fine with me so and he looks like he could be have definitely have a chance to do that here down the stretch yeah anything else on book I don't think so let's keep it rolling Let's keep it rolling. Nick Richards, uh, coming off a career-high 17 rebounds against the Indiana Pacers, uh, which the Hornets got the win, coming back from 21 points down. And I thought, Nick Richards, I thought, well, him and the rest of the team were terrible in that first quarter where Miles Turner just, like, walked to the rim continuously. But then, actually, in the next three quarters, what I thought were probably his best three quarters of sustained, like, basketball that he's put together. I'm, I'm going to read you some some quick stats just to... To set the scene, and then I'm going to hand it over to you. So, um, as a as a backup before Mark Williams got hurt, these are the stats for Nick Richards. He was 17 minutes per game, eight points, six rebounds, one block, basically, and that was on 61% from the field, 74 and a half percent from the free throw line. Like kind of pretty standard. I think if you told people to guess what it was, they'd probably guess right around there. Since becoming a starter, uh, 10 points. Nine and a half rebounds, 1.5 assists, 2.3 blocks, field goal percentage for 74%, free throw percentage for 86%. Now, that is only five or six games. It is small sample size theater. But the, the key big jumps there are, if you look at the, the defensive rebound percentage since he's been a starter, is at 31%. It was 18% for the rest of the season before that. We were talking like a massive jump in controlling the defensive glass. And then his block percentage is now at 4.8% since being a starter. And it was at 2.8% before. So these are pretty huge jumps in the areas that we know, like for any center, defensive rebounding and rim protection are huge. And he's not just kind of got more minutes and increased his numbers. The actual percentage of possessions that he is influencing and impacting has like, in some cases, gone up by like 40, 50%. Like it's, it's been pretty impressive. So that's the the scene set for the statistical point of view. Does that match your eye test, Chase? I think it absolutely does. My thing with Nick Richards is, you know, there, there are a lot of people that may have bemoaned the lack of opportunity that he got to start his career. But I think that in a way it benefited him to start slow because he hadn't necessarily had any sort of like large role at any point in his career before that, even at Kentucky. And he was going to be a backup, ideally, in his career anyway, for everything worked out for the Hornets. So he seems to have been eased along, like, in backup roles for multiple years, playing less in his rookie year, slightly more in his second year, and then now in his third year, mostly a backup other than right now when Mark has gotten hurt. But And he, he has proven that he is, like, a capable, defensive-minded second-unit center that also can clearly get you 14 points and 17 rebounds as a starter in a pinch against one of the better rim protectors in the league. Uh, I, at, to me, he's somebody Without that, playing with LaMelo Ball as well, right, we should point out e- here, Exactly. Right? Because, because playing with LaMelo is much easier for any center than it is playing with Terry's, Terry Rozier or Dennis Smith Jr. So, like, this is the other thing. He's not even been in the best situation right now. No, not definitely not. And I, I remember when he was a rookie and sophomore, like, sometimes he would have to play as the four with Vernon Carey on the floor at times. And oh. now uh, there were. That's not. Oh, can we pretend that didn't happen? I How, I, I, I was going to say. Oh, I knew you remember God. that. Those uh, our, those lineups where it was like Nick Richards, Vernon Carey, like Jalen McDaniel's, 
uh, and like JT Thor replaced <laughs> Vernon Carey in the one year as, as the, uh, the oversized three in the lineup. But it was it was some ugly garbage time lineups that Nick had to work through. But look at where he's at now. I mean, shout out Vernon Carey. He's out the league, yeah. but we'll always have that one first half against Brooklyn where he had like 21 points and everyone was like, Vernon Carey, he's, he's going to be a thing. Yep. And that and was then, literally the high two, point of his career. Three fouls in the first like minute <laughs> yes. and a half of the next game a... against Yusuf Nurkic and pretty and much play. never played again yeah. after that. In the yeah. NBA. Literally didn't yeah, play li- again in the NBA after that. Went to the yeah. Wizards, got sent to the G League, and that was cut. So um, I, I hope Vernon can find his way back here. But um, we'll always have that first half against the Brooklyn Nets. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But I, for Nick, anyway... I, I've, I've been meaning to – I want to ask you this question about both him and uh, Dennis Smith Jr. Just as a broad question, do you think the Hornets should look to re-sign him or make it a, a point to re-sign him? Because I think at some point they kind of have to, like, not only start but, like, keep re-signing some of these draft picks that they've hit on. Cody Martin's the only one that's received an extension. I've, everybody else gets traded, like, to maximize value, like Jalen McDaniels. Uh, Devontae Graham got traded as well. Uh, Nick would be presumably like a low salary free agent re-signing like less than $10 million, probably something like the low end of the uh, MLE or something like that. And they can't trade him, obviously, because he's a restricted free agent. So to me, you might as well just keep him as your backup center, keep that role consistent and keep, you know, rewarding players that you've developed and that have worked very hard to become NBA players in your system. I think it's a complicated one. I don't think it's straightforward. Um, I, I think, you know, Steve Clifford said the other day that I think he can be a rotation center for a good team, for a good playoff team. So, like, I think if Steve Clifford is going to be the coach next year, and this is linked to the ownership stuff, um, which I think is more than likely he will be, but not confirmed. I think, you know, the idea like Mitch Kupchak drafted him, he obviously wants him to do well because it reflects well on Mitch. Steve Clifford clearly likes him. The way they want to play is play big, play with traditional centers, not go small. I, I th- so I think if like the same leadership group is in place, I think it would be much more likely that he'll be brought back. He is unrestricted. Um, so like he does have the option to essentially go anywhere. Um, and that could make him... Oh, no, sorry, he's restricted. Yeah, apologies. I was going to say, I think, I think he's a restricted for agent. He no, is he restricted. Um, so that will hopefully make it a little bit cheaper. It'll make him less likely to sign our other teams. But I think this is the big thing. You look at the other options out there, and I did this earlier, like for backup centers, you look like Montrez Harrell, Bismarck Biombo, Andre Drummond, like Mike Muscala, Mason Plumley. Like these are the names you're looking at really for like, backup bigs and i prefer nick richards to all of those guys um the the big thing here is like well what about kai jones because if you re-sign nick then what happens to kai jones i think we've now learned like it should let's no more kai jones at power forward we we don't need to do that experiment again like we know his best position is center and like if you don't add a center in the draft this year you still need three bigs on the roster and you keep kai as, as the third so I think it's more likely at the same time, just because of the money, the flexibility, the roster crunch, the draft um, and potential changes coming into the franchise. I wouldn't, I wouldn't lock it in, but with him being restricted, I would say it is more likely. Um, And yeah, the big thing for me is the spacing. 
because he is a complete non-shooter. And like, if you say, well, yeah, and we'll get on to Dennis Smith Jr., but yeah, we're going to bring Dennis Smith Jr. back and Cody Martin's going to be back and JT Thor. Well, we've just listed four guys in Richards, Thor, Smith Jr. and Cody Martin, who none of them are like real offensive threats. Like they are all more defense first guys. And how are you going to be able to put together a second unit that can score the ball efficiently enough? Like, like in the NBA now, to have more than one non-shooter on the floor is normally a challenge. And if Nick Richards is playing, he is your non-shooter. So straight away there, you're like it really puts a lot of stress on your other possession positions in that second unit. Um, so I just think they can, but the Hornets need to build sensibly around that second unit if they know that Richards is going to be coming back. Yeah, I think that's pretty sound reasoning as well. I kind of had the same you know, thought when I was going through my notes for this about Dennis Smith Jr., but I'm obviously a much different player and archetype and reasoning, but the fit that he has both as a non-shooter with other players on the roster makes it a little bit more difficult of a question than just like, oh, you know, he's provided us these skills. They've affected the team in this positive way. We should look to keep him because that would be the ideal thing to do rather than going to find somebody else that can give you potentially the same things and as a free agent. But the we're getting to the point now where the Hornets need to like really, really start building a roster that actually fits around LaMelo Ball and can yeah. maximize him when he is healthy. Because uh, last year they obviously did, and they were 43 and 39. They were a very good uh, offensive team, which ideally is what you want to be with LaMelo. But even when they had LaMelo this year, they still weren't a very good offensive team. You can't really imagine that that had some, or you can imagine that that had something to do with how poor they were shooting wise. Like they were easily like the worst shooting team like across the board. If you factor in like field goal percentage, effective field oh, goal percentage, three awful. point percentage, attempts, they've, whatever. They've one player shooting, and that's another ball. One player shooting above average from three point land right. in the in the entire roster this year. Above average, not even the the entire roster apart from the mellow is in the bottom 50% of the league of shooters. And these are guys like Gordon Hayward, Terry Rozier, guys that you think have got a reputation to shoot the ball. PJ Washington, we think of him as a stretch four. Like, yeah, and I know some of this is not because, like, if you were to line them up in terms of, like, quality of shooters, they would be in the top 50%, but it's because the situation, the quality of looks they're getting, et cetera. Right. And also just because some of them have not shot the ball as well as they should have this year as well, so... Yeah, and on top of that, they're, I didn't even know this until right now when I was just looking it up while you were talking. They're the fourth worst team in field goal percentage at the rim. So pretty much no shot that is an effective form of offense. No. They have been effect or they have hit efficiently this year. Um, you, that needs to change somehow. Like you can't ask, you know, Nick Richards, Dennis Smith, and Cody Martin to all just become better shooters. Like you exactly. have to supply your roster with that yourself. And that, obviously that falls on Mitch to do this summer, but. It makes and that, it that's, really that's where fans, I think, question. sorry, that's where fans need to like, it's really easy to sit back and go, well, we need to resign Dennis. We need to right. resign Nick. But then you can't sit there and complain and go, why is the offense so bad? <laughs> yeah. You, you, we've got to be able to like plug these puzzle pieces together like the, like the front office do. Um, you know, and that's why sometimes difficult decisions have to be made because it's it's not easy, right? Like in a vacuum, yeah. Like these guys have got some potential and shown some good stuff, but it's but it's more complicated than that. One thing I do want to say about Nick is, if you'd have asked me this question in like January, 
I would have probably been like 50-50. Whereas now I'm probably more like 75-80% that he would come back. And I will say this stretch run here where he started playing against starting, starting quality players, we talked about needing to see this to be able to make a decision. When we were talking about Mason Plumbing being moved, we thought, well, who's going to start? Like maybe they want to see what Nick has got, right? He's got the opportunity by way of injury. But I, would, I do say this stretch that he is on now has really swayed me. Like, and I know it's only a small sample, but this is against some of the best units without the Mellow Ball. And he has taken his game up another level from where it was earlier in the season. So uh, shout out to Nick Richards for like, he, he's already had a, a breakout year, but he's like getting better in March, um, which isn't always easy to do. I mean, he, yeah, I looking at his game log, he, he has had a double double in three of the four performances in which he's played more than 25 minutes. The last time there are three of his last four games, which he's played more than 25 minutes. So work he works in a role and in the last couple weeks he's been very good as a starter in a pinch and that's literally the definition of like what teams are looking for in their backup center like you all you want is a guy that can just play defense score on the inside rebound you know if he's he can be a starter if you need him to and then in the playoffs hopefully when you're healthy like steve clifford said he can just be your rotational backup big man Okay, let's move on to Dennis Smith Jr. here. Um, Dennis Smith Jr., obviously, everyone knows the story, was on a non-guaranteed deal, um, has played, probably been like Steve Cuff even said, like he said the other day in one of his pregames, he's in the top, he's one of the best defenders in the NBA. He said, not in the top 15, I'm talking top five or six. So that's how highly Steve Cuff rates him. Uh, the eye test says that, like, especially earlier in the season, I would say he was even better. But, like, the defense is exceptional. And he's also been, like, a really good playmaker. He's got a 27% assist percentage, according to Cleaning the Glass. That is the same as, like, Steph Curry, Kyrie Irving, uh, Russell, Van Vliet, Jamal Murray, Kevin Porter Jr. Like, these are some of the premier point guards in the league. And in terms of creating shots and assist rate, he is, he is right up there. Um the offense himself is where it gets really tricky. So he's as inefficient scorer as you get. Um, and a bit of trivia time for Fear Chase. Trivia time. Right. Okay. Can you Here name the four players who efficiency is under 100 for points per shot attempt, according to Cleaning the Glass? So this is essentially the, the four players who've logged over 1,000 minutes but have are, are the four most inefficient players at high volume obviously one is dennis smith jr i'm going to give you that one right because you know okay. i'm asking this question if that is one of them can you name the other three all right so full disclosure james told me he was going to ask me this this morning and i'm an honest man so i did not like look it up or anything but i have been thinking about it all day so i have quite an extensive list of <laughs> potential candidates so i'm hoping that i hit on a couple of them here um obviously i when he didn't tell me he was going to reveal Dennis Smith Jr., so that that obviously helps. But the power of uh, the our power of deduction, I obviously assumed that it wasn't Lamelo. Terry has improved his efficiency as the year went on. Kelly Oubre, I don't think would qualify as a guard for the NBA, so that nope. kind of just led me to default to to Dennis Smith Jr. So that works out. I've got a couple other guesses. I've, I'll I'll pull four of them. I'm hoping that I can get a couple. I'll, do you want to just tell me as I go, and we can. We can see. You, you throw one out there, and I'll All let right. you know. If R.J. You're Barrett. Cold. 
He's not on the list. I don't think he's listed as a guard. I think that's ah, why I think he's okay. listed as a forward, according uh, okay. to cleaning the glass. But yeah, he's not on my list. Jalen Green. Not on my list. Killian Hayes. On the list. Killian hey, Hayes. There we go. He is, Killian Hayes is the only player in the entire NBA who is less efficient on points for shot attempt than Dennis Smith Jr. Oof. That's tough. Um, he is pretty much, he is actually logged almost the most minutes of, of the four guys. I think Dennis Smith Jr. Hmm. is in third, and there is the two of the guys left to give you a little bit of hint there. So, yeah, Dennis, okay. uh, Killian Hayes, Kevin O'Killian, Killian Hayes is on the list. You have two left to get. Uh, in fact, no, three left to get. Uh, is it Russell Westbrook? I had him written. I didn't feel very he confident. He is on the list. Oh, he is okay. on the list. All right. Russell I didn't Westbrook. feel very confident in that one, I'll be honest. He is on the list. Uh, and then there is one left here. All right. Fred Van Vliet. Nope. Ooh. All right. I don't have anybody left written down. I'm going to. I can, I can give you a, I can point you in the right direction. Okay. Southeast division. Okay. Hmm. It's definitely it's not. It's... Former, former all NBA player before getting injured and maybe all star. Victor Oladipo. Correct. Well Bang, done. look at that. I was like, hmm, who? <laughs> I was literally thinking in my head, I was like, who is not that good in the Southeast Division? <laughs> Victor Holodipo came right yeah. up. That that works out. Wow, so, look at that. I, I mean, I, I guess I went like 50% in that, but you did that's pretty ultimately good not bad. Absolutely. So Killian Hayes, Dennis Smith Jr., Russell Westbrook, Victor Oladipo, the most inefficient guards lo- logging proper minutes in the NBA. Dennis Smith Jr. is in that group. Um, he is 62% at the rim, which is actually pretty good for like a 6-1 guard. Uh, but we all know after a hot start, the outside shooting struggles are, well, the outside, the anything apart from the rim has just been inefficient. To that, say I was going to say, that is that really accentuates the 62% at the rim because that's pretty good. I mean, mostly for, unassisted looks as well. It's like, like he's 50, creating yeah, these 50th percentile, I think that is, for like a guard, which is means he's average and he's smaller than most guards, right? I know he's a nuclear right. athlete, but yeah. Yeah, wow. I mean, yeah, that, that is kind of just why for me, like if we, it's to ask, if we were going to ask the same question that we asked about Nick, like keeping him this summer, like I'd probably lean more towards no than wow. than yes. Like if, if I, and I, I, in a way- It's hard. I, in a vacuum, it's, it's an easy question. Oh yeah. yeah, you know, but then you start looking at the roster and- it's tricky. Right. And like Teo Maladon is still here. Like he's on a two way. He was really good at the beginning of the year. Obviously yeah. hasn't been on the rotation in a really long time because not he's a great on a two way. Either, to be honest. He's not, he's not, he's not really impacted the game. Like I was hoping he would in Greensbury he kind of disappears at times. He even got benched once or twice. I've seen it's been weird, weird Greensbury yeah. form season for Teo Maladon. Yeah. But I mean, earlier in the year, I think we asked this question yeah. But who would you rather have? I, I'm I'm pretty sure my answer was Teo Maladon. And yeah, I think I, I was definitely Team Dennis, but you were yeah. Team Teo at the time. I think yeah, Te- I think I was. I've Obviously, great- now I would I would say Dennis because he hasn't played in two months. But I mean, yeah. the long term is again like this is a very difficult question to answer if you think like grand scheme of things. And if you look like like for future next year, Dennis Smith Jr. this year with him on the court and both. Lamello and Terry Rose are off it. So where he is like the lead ball handler, because normally when both of those guys are on, he's almost playing like a two guard and offense. The team scores 99.9 points per 100 possessions, which is in the zero percentile. Zero. 
means it would be the worst lineup on offense in the NBA for when they're missing Terry and Lamelo. Um, and it, it probably doesn't help that, right? Like if both of those guys are off this year, it probably means the two next to him is like Bryce McGowan's or early season James Booknight, who were, you know, have not been efficient players either. I mean, on defense, obviously the lineup's pretty good. It's like 108 points, which is good, 95th percentile. But it, you just can't come back from that. You, he is just such a poor shooter and such a limited threat. And for that to be from your main ball handler, which is normally a position of high usage, it puts such a strain on your other positions to all of a sudden, like your wings have to be responsible for like all your shot making, which they are probably not used to doing. Um, so it's just really difficult, man, to put a good offense out there. But again, like S- Steve Clifford loves the guy. Um, it's very clear from that. He has been a nice story. Like they love him around the young players. Steve Clifford said that the other day that he's absolutely great to be around. So I don't know. I, again, like if there was, I all, some of this depends on the draft and how this goes. And because like if they draft a center, that affects it. Richards. If they draft Anthony Black, right, that affects Dennis Smith Jr. So th- this is why it's hard to just, like really talk and like to have a really solid base of where your opinion is coming from, but. Um, I, there's definitely roots to where Dennis Jr. isn't back on the roster next year, as, as shocking as that might come to someone if you watch every single game. Yeah, and I honestly think I would echo the Steve Clifford comments about him being one of the best defenders in the league. Maybe not to, you know, top five or six, but and it, it just really makes it seem so crazy how difficult it is to, like, build a roster in the NBA to have a player like that on your team and not really be sure whether or not he would actually fit in with the roster long-term. Like I honestly think he could have been in the all defense conversation if he played like big minutes all season. He's 93rd percentile in steal percentage, 85th percentile in block percentage, super aggressive, like defensive. If he was on the Lakers, let's put let's put. Oh yeah. If he was on the Lakers, he would be like, uh, he would have an hour long highlight video made of him. Just like Austin Reeves. (laughs) Like Austin Reeves. Yeah. Yeah. Like the people, even though the Lakers, aren't great this year and they would still be pushing all defense like no one is watching charlotte so he's going to get no buzz but if he was on any mid market or big size market doing what he's done this year he would be on an all defense shortlist for people i think but it it won't happen because people are going to sleep on it um i I will say that um i've lost my train of thought All right, well, I was just going to say that the the Hornets, over the last 15 (laughs) games, the Hornets are fourth in defensive rating. He's obviously a huge reason for that, too. Like, him him and Nick combined are, like, a huge reason for that because Mark has missed, what, like, five games now? Maybe so. Yeah. A decent portion of that is without Mark, so. So, what I was going to say was uh, he almost just needs the perfect place, the perfect fit. And you look at someone like Gary Payton, for the Warriors, who was in the G League to like the age of 26, 27, and found his place in the Warriors where they needed like high IQ players. They had a ton of shooting around him. They you know, allowed him to just kind of focus on what he did. And he found a, w- a way, found a role where like his lack of on-ball creation, his lack of shooting didn't hurt the team anyway near as much. And like, if it, it would be a different situation if Hornets' like second unit was full of people who could spread the floor and Dennis Smith Jr. could just be like rim attack and kick out. 
it's not looking like that at the moment. Um, but I do, I do want to like, and Dennis needs to go get paid, right? If, if he can get Absolutely. like a good contract, like he had basically his rookie contract, he's been, been on non-guaranteed minimum since, since he's not in a position to like show loyalty here. If there's a team that's going to play Dennis, like two years, 12 million to go be their backup point guard, like he needs to take that for like, for him. Um, so I think that's another thing to keep in mind as well. But like, yeah, I do think he could find the right role in the right situation. But I think he needs to be playing around some much better offensive players than he's probably going to get here in Charlotte. Um, yeah, but like, he's, I mean, if he could come back as like a third guard, I would, I, I yeah. that would be incredible, right? But like, because you're like, well, this is a guy who we know can come in and set a level and can be a leader. Um, but I just think he's going to have more options than that. And I think he'd want to try and pursue those. Yeah, I completely agree. Oh, I mean, overall, he's revived his career, proven he's an NBA player. That's a great, you know, story for him and the Hornets. And either way, we know, however it ends out, I feel like this was definitely, even if it's one season of Dennis Smith Jr., that's okay. If it's multiple seasons, that's even better. So it's definitely a good thing that he was able to do that here with the Hornets this year. It's like a, bright, Jeremy, a bright spot Jeremy in Lynn. a cloudy season. Uh, it's a, like extended, get Jer- like, it was like 82 games of, of Jeremy Lin, like obviously just not in New York either. So so that didn't quite, uh, there was no uh, Dennis Smith sanity necessarily, but there could have been. There but they have resurrected been. his career like Lin, right? You know, Lin Absolutely. was yeah. borderline, you know, really struggled in a few stops. You're wondering what's the future. And all of a sudden, Jeremy Lin went and signed a contract for the Rockets, was it? I think for three years, like off the back yeah. of that. And, and everyone wanted Lin back, but at the same time, it's kind of a similar thing. Like, yeah, but Kemba is the guy and it, it just didn't quite make a ton of sense and he wanted to go get paid. So again, like it's the, it could be a similar situation with Dennis Smith. Um, anything else on Dennis? I don't think so. All right. Well, Chase, let's, uh, I'm going to let you get out of here. Uh, and then, Oh, gonna... Oh no, you're not, not just yet. Oh. Cause I Fire didn't give away. you any warning about this at all, but I have a not. counter trivia question for you. To oh, end the no. podcast. Oh, and I've not been warned about this one. No, okay. not not in any way. All right. So this is from Cleaning the Glass. Yeah. How many players with equal or higher volume rank in a higher percentile than Kelly Oubre in long mid-range field goal percentage on Cleaning the Glass? For ex- he has 45 oh, wow. long mid-range field goal attempts. These are like really long twos. Uh, basically okay. like for the list like, like for a visual it's like if you were to draw a three-point line around the the free throw line like a high school three-point line and you know take all your yeah. shots from between there in the nba line so okay how many players are there above him well the, this is you you gotta guess okay right okay i'm gonna go straight off kevin durant demar Derozan is my first two nope Wow. Right. Okay. Okay. They're like the two of the best mid-range players in the entire NBA. So that's a concern. Um, <laughs> oh gosh. Now like Chris Paul is like a good long range two point. Nope. Okay. Shaking nope. Your head there. Negative. Um, oh gosh. This is frustrating. Drew Holiday could be up there like a pull up guy. No. Negative. No? Again. Okay. Uh, this is getting, I mean, I feel like I'm actually putting out some like sensible names as well. Which All right. Is... I'll, I'll give you one more. You're going to get, what, what you're going to give me one I'll more gi- guess? I'll give you one more guess and then I'll. Um, uh... Okay. Hold on. Hold on here. Let me, I'm going to take some time on this. Last... Oh, Donovan Mitchell has to be a long range two guy. It is not. And you oh, know why I only on. gave you one more guess, James? 
Why? Because we'd be here all night. There's not a single player in the NBA <laughs> that ranks in a higher percentile than Kelly Oubre in long mid-range oh, field goal percentage. It, of anybody that has 45 attempts from that area, there is not a single player that shoots a higher per- that is in a higher percentile. He shoots 58 percent on 26 of 45, 97th percentile in the NBA. The next closest player to him is Desmond Bain at 53% on 32 of 60. And he's only in like the eight is somewhere in the mid eighties. So Kelly Oubre for the volume and efficiency, there is nobody in the NBA that is better at shooting long twos than him this season. So what a a, year Kelly Oubre is. I know that like that is just massive, massive improvements from him as a three level scorer. And even if like the overall efficiency numbers don't show it, uh, which is why I thought I found that so interesting. Like yeah. his field goal percentage is not very good, but the like area specific stats, like some of them are very good. And like those, you know, tough jumpers that he makes out of pick and rolls or like that fadeaway he made from the elbow uh, off that baseline out of bounds to get the first points for the game uh, of the game against the Pacers. Like mm. those kinds of tough shots, he's gotten a lot better at them. So that's really a interesting skill that this game is like a re- release valve scorer uh for the hornets potentially in the future as well if he's to stay around absolutely well shout out to kelly Ubre, shout out nick richards shout out james Bucknight, shout out to dennis smith jr um thanks for joining us we're gonna have a quick break here to hear from our friends at DraftKings, and then we're gonna come back with des johnson from swarm report podcast um and we're gonna be talking the michael jordan ownership situation so we will catch you after the break NBA fans, it's time to bring the hoops action to the palm of your hands with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. This week, new customers can bet $5 and win $200 in free bets in bonus bets instantly. Plus, for a limited time, all new and the existing customers get a no-sweat same-game parlay every day. Go to the DraftKings Sportsbook app today, opt-in, and place a same-game parlay on any NBA game. And if it doesn't hit you'll get your bonus bet back. So one bet I'm looking out for is the Hornets against the Suns. Kevin Durant's first game back. Everyone's going to juice the Suns. Everyone's going to juice Kevin Durant overs. I'm going for Kevin Durant unders. I also think the Hornets might cover that game. Be the first time with Phoenix playing with a lot of their new team. Uh, First time with Kevin Durant. He'll probably be on a minutes limit. He'll be a bit rusty. So I'm pairing Kevin Durant with Hornets unders for my same game parlay. So to bet... Download the app now and sign up with code TBPN. New customers can bet $5 on the NBA and get $200 in free bets instantly. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA with code TBPN. Minimum age and eligibility restrictions apply. And welcome back to Inside the Hive. Uh, Chase has had to jump off for the second part of the podcast, but joining me this week is... All Hornets Podcast Network host over on the Swarm Report, Desmond Johnson. Desmond, how you doing? I'm good, man. How are you doing? I'm doing very good. And Desmond, as this is your first time on Inside the Hive, that means you get a theme song. So I know, I know from listening to the Swarm Report that you're going to enjoy the song, and I think you've done very well because some of the some of the other songs that other people have gotten here are like, what the hell was that? But <laughs> you ready? Ready to hear a theme song? Here, here we go. This is, you're going to enjoy this one. Hey. Everyone near this one, right? 
Okay. Um, I, I know you weren't a fan of the new Fresh Prince, right? Am I right in thinking that? I, I'm a fan of Bel Air, and I'm a fan of the, the OG original show, uh, Fresh Prince of Bel Air. So yeah, this, this is great. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so reason you're joining us today uh, is to touch on the Michael Jordan ownership news, which came out recently. Um, on th- last Thursday, Adrian Wojnarowski reported that the Hornets owner, Michael Jordan, is engaged in serious talks to sell a majority stake in the franchise, led by minority owner Gabe Plotkin and Atlanta Hawks minority owner Richard Rick Schnall. Uh, no deal is imminent, but there is significant momentum on a sale that would eventually install Plotkin and Schnall as the co-governors of the Hornets. Um, what are your thoughts? I, did this catch you off guard? Are you welcoming seeing this news are you disappointed to see jordan potentially leaving as owner what what's your heart saying here um there was a couple of questions there uh <laughs> for start i mean i guess when i first heard it i wasn't really surprised i might have been surprised that it took this long i think i kind of gave jordan a 10-year window that for him after about 10 years of ownership if he wasn't in that tier of owners it's like winning titles and competing all the time that he would start to get bored with it and maybe start to move to something else. Cause the man has other things that he can do to quench his competitive juices. It doesn't necessarily have to be in basketball. Uh, and he's gone about the past five or six years or so kind of putting those things in place. So you've almost kind of see him preparing for life after basketball without actually saying out loud, I'm preparing for life after basketball. Um, when he sold the minority stake it was in 2020, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, uh, to the same group. That's when the thought initially crossed my mind because they kind of did it the same way. It was, it wasn't like a public type thing until it was done. We didn't know about this until this was out there, meaning this has probably been there for a couple of months, if not longer already. And we're just now finding out about it, which to me tells me it's pretty much a done deal. Um, when it'll actually officially take place, maybe they're waiting for the end of the the fiscal year in the NBA or something for tax reasons. I, I don't know, but uh, that part didn't really surprise me too much. Uh, I am, I'm a little, um, I'm a little disappointed, not in Jordan, but the fact that if he does sell, there won't be an there won't be an African American minor uh, like a majority owner of an NBA yeah. franchise if he does. And it had to be the the greatest player of all time, be the first and only. Really, uh, well, he wasn't the first Bob Johnson, um, but I don't know. I don't know when the opportunity could come back around again. Although I thought I read some stuff or saw some stuff briefly on Twitter that he may parlay this into potentially purchasing an NFL franchise. So. I think uh, there was some speculation around yeah. linking him with the commanders. Um, nothing sourced that I saw, but people were kind of putting two and two together with the timing. That's from what I saw. And that's different money. You know what I mean? But NFL money is different than NBA money when it comes to ownership. And Jordan would be putting himself, I'd imagine he, I think I saw Magic Johnson was linked to that too or something like that. So maybe if MJ, Magic, Shaq, mm. a couple other former NBA players decided to form a group and buy the Washington commanders and get into that, NFL money. There's no African American owners in the NFL, so I think it would temper it a little bit for me if uh, if Jordan does do this. Still remains a minority owner, so he still remains a part of the the community, a part of the Hornets lore, everything that you want. Almost becomes more of a spokesman for the Hornets as opposed to the guy that's pushing the button to make the the belt go down the you know the factory conveyor or whatever. So my I'm kind of positive about it, kind of. <laughs> Well, I mean, I mean, this is the thing, right? We don't know much about the new owners, but they are classic, like hedge fund uh, guys. Like you know, 
people who make a you know they make a lot of money and that is what they do they are you know purely about profit that's what hedge fund look at right and you know we seen like someone in david tepper similar background who owns the carolina panthers and you'll know way more than me um who's got money to burn and plowed a lot into it but you know especially uh with gabe plotkin with his link to the GameStop, uh robin hood story uh is disconcerting to read hmm. i i am surprised that why was there not an open sale process here? Like Manchester United, for example, the soccer team, they're up for sale at the minute. The Glazers said, we're looking to sell. They made the announcement to the world. Bids have come in from around the world and they're now working their way through the bids. This has like happened behind the scenes, kind of off the record. And like, it's going to a couple of like, pretty much like like real nobodies, if we're being honest, like not, not with a massive profile. Like there's been rumors in the past that Jeff Bezos would like to buy an NBA team and, um, I'm, I'm curious how this whole thing has gone down. And I don't know if it's because if because Jordan wanted to remain a minority stake and that's why he wants to sell to people he knows. I, I don't know, but it's uh, it's just it's just one of the questions that popped into my head is why has it happened this way? And I think you're right. It's been in the, the wheels for like, a, the wheels have been turning on this for a long time, I think since 2020. I think the fact that the, the team signed the lease till 2045, just this summer, I think, you know, that's clearly one thing Jordan wanted to do before he sold the team was get that confirmed to secure Charlotte Hornets franchise to be in Charlotte, at least for the, the medium term. And he, he's done that now. So I think he's been working his way here through a list of to-do list things before he gets the sale. And he obviously now feels now's the right time. Honestly, if you really think back on it too, for starters, when you were saying that, my, my thought was Jeff Bezos could probably buy the entire NBA <laughs> if he really, if he really wanted to call it the Bezos league. Um, I, I, my, I go back to the money part of it, too. Um, that might be why it's being held up, because the stock market here is down right now. Yeah. Uh, so with these hedge fund guys coming in to buy it, maybe they're waiting for it to go back up. So they got some more you know, cash on hand to be able to make this happen. Um, but in terms of uh, the lease aspect of it, the article that you had wrote about this on the 20th on all SI uh, for the Hornet site, that was the one thing that stood out to me because I didn't realize they had signed a lease until the mm. 2045. So um the one thing i could say is that michael jordan is very very conscious of his image especially in his home state uh the man is considered a god here pretty much so um we can still pick on him for not winning any basketball games as the owner yeah but it's like light dressing compared to what he's viewed as like if you saw michael jordan in walmart here in charlotte or something like it would be just on the new it'd be all over the place he's still considered that way he's the only guy i can think of other than michael jackson that I've seen like grown adults weep at the sight of like it still <laughs> like to this day, like he's just got this aura about him. Um, so I think it's critical for him to stay a part of the Hornets. And I think for him, it was critical to make sure that you can't never point a finger at him and say, he's the reason why the Hornets moved again. Like, Oh, he could, he, super absolutely. Important. Surely yeah. he, could, he like, it would be, he would completely tarnish his reputation, which is oh, like yeah. already taken a hit through like his lack of success as an owner. But to then to do that to his home state, his home city after That's buying it and it just would have been like yeah. uh, a, an absolute nightmare and something that he obviously would not want to happen. So and people here don't forget easily. Nope. Either. They hold grudges, they hold vendettas uh, and Jordan grew up here. So he knows, you know what it is. Why he came back. And I don't think he's really looking to leave this area anytime soon either. So, by becoming a minority owner, 
the the he bought the stake for 180 million dollars 10 or 13 years ago the, the team is worth 1.7 billion i think if any of us <laughs> were in this situation we and and the way the hornets are personnel wise right now and they've been kind of spinning their wheels ever since he bought them you'd probably be at the same point right now too thinking of well hell i can make a billion dollars off of this investment from a decade ago still kind of be involved with the team not be like the, the the decision maker it's kind of similar to what magic johnson and the lakers went through a couple years ago when uh genie bus made magic the basically the head of basketball operations and he was having to take all the bullets for everything that was going on with the lakers and he realized he was more powerful as a face of the Lakers organization but not as an actual uh front office member and so he stepped down and even genie didn't know you know until he actually announced it to the press that day so it kind of feels like that a little bit that mike's kind of recognizing that a little bit but he'll never be he'll never be the one to be like you know charles barkley was right you know 10 years ago i don't know what i'm doing you know <laughs> he'll never he'll never do that but he'll get a billion out of it and walk off and still reap the benefits of being associated yeah. with the hornets I, and i know a lot of people say right people say that he doesn't care about the hornets he doesn't care about the franchise um I really don't think that is true. If, if that was the case, then why has he gone to be a GM? Why has he decided to become an owner? Like there's a bunch of ex NBA legends out there who could have done, have put the hard yards in on a small franchise to try and buy it. And like, he didn't have to do this. <laughs> you know, there were a hundred options of what he could do in his post-playing career. Like you look at guys like Shaq, uh, you look at guys like Bill Russell, Kobe, before obviously he passed away. Like these guys, LeBron James is obviously someone who's got clear got ownership aspirations but there are other people out there who i think could have looked at doing this and he is the only one and he spent a lot of years toiling away knowing that he is the butt of a lot of jokes and i think he's lasted a pretty long time and i think even if this year had been a success i still think the sales going through i don't think this is like a knee-jerk reaction to this year's bad like we said i think it's been no. in the works for a while and i think yeah. At some point, like he's got this his NASCAR team going on, which is doing well from what I understand. And at some point, like who's crying out for Michael Jordan to to stay now? And I think that's the question. Um, I do still think like there is an element of when I say to people, Oh, I, I write about and podcast about the Charlotte Hornets, the, the some people actually know who that team is in the UK. You know why? Because they go, Oh, that's the team Michael Jordan owns. Yeah. So what yeah. What are the Charlotte Hornets now going to be known for, right? Like, because that was, there'll be some people who follow the team just because Jordan owns them. Like, that will 100% have been their, their way in. Like, they'll love, like you say, that he is the only black owner in the NBA. He is a former player. Like, you now we're taken under by, like, you know, the whitest of white guys. Like, when we come <laughs> to the two hedge fund managers in their suits, when you see our pictures on, like, Wall Street, like, and it's, uh, it's going to be quite a change. The, I think the main thing that'll happen that happens with any organization that goes through an organizational purchase, and you you echoed this in the article that you wrote that was really well written. Uh, there's going to be a cleaning of house of sorts at the front office. I don't know if Mitch Kupchak's going to be here. I don't know mm. if uh, Larry Jordan, Michael Jordan's brother, who had some kind of role in there, if he'll he'll definitely probably won't be there. Now with Mike having a minority say, maybe that means some of this stays, but maybe well, it shouldn't. This is the big this is the big question, right? Minority ownership. What does that mean? Like you say, is it He's an ambassador for the team. Is it that they want him to be an advisor still to stay on? Like, because I have real concern. Like, imagine you bought, I don't know, you, you bought an, a brand new car 
Mm-hmm. And then you get in the driver one day and suddenly there's a guy in the back seat who used to own the car before you going, oh yeah, like the, the clutch sometimes does that. You should <laughs> you should drive it this way. You'd be like, like I've just put, I own the car. Stop telling me what to do. Open yeah. it up. Yeah. yeah. Like <laughs> this is, I mean, I wouldn't want that as a new owner of something like the old guy who failed for years, like sticking around and telling you this is how we did it back in my day. When back in my, my day, you'd say, well, it didn't work that way, did it? Right. I, you know, honestly, I don't think Jordan would want it that way either. Otherwise, he wouldn't sell the majority stake. He, like just knowing how Michael Jordan's wired, if he was really wanting to stick around so he could actually have a say in decisions, he wouldn't sell a majority stake. But if he's mm-hmm. wanting to stick around to, to still be a part of the brand, be a part of the uh, stuff they, they do outside of the arena and the community, to still be a part of Charlotte and the Hornets yeah. fabric, then I could see him, you know, yeah, I'll be, you know, 10% owner or whatever. I get a little bit each year. You guys actually work, worry about working on the franchise. I, personally, I want the Charlotte Hornets to get back to where they were in the early 90s, which to me is their peak when they had Muggsy Bogues and Larry Johnson and, and Alonzo Mourning, Kendall Gill, Del Curry, like that group when mid-90s when Jordan retired the first time, there was a small gap of about a year and a half in the NBA where it was anybody's game. And the Hornets were in that mix in the Eastern Conference, and they were one of the younger up-and-coming teams coming up. I got a Larry Johnson jersey right here behind me. Like it, that that squad is what made the Carolinas fall in love with the Hornets because even back then, all those games were free. You could watch every single Hornets game on over-the-air television. So like it was easy to fall in love with them because of the Hornets network across the state. It, it had an affiliate in every major city, so you could watch all 82 games for free, and you, you got a chance to watch the Hornets. You can't do that anymore. Uh, so it makes it a little bit harder for them to reconnect. But I think that should be the goal to get back to that, where uh, if I'm not mistaken, the Hornets for a while owned the record, the North American record for most consecutive sellouts. Yeah. Uh, there, you know, like through the 90s, like when that team was there and when we were doing these things before they moved to New Orleans, they can get back to that. This is a basketball starved area. Uh, this is to me the, the mecca of college basketball is North Carolina, like the state. Uh, having the, the the players and the history and the coaches and stuff here. And Jordan, I mean, the GOAT, he came from here. You know, like it, it all to me starts here in the state of North Carolina when it comes to basketball. So whoever comes in to buy the team, if it's these two guys, and it sounds like it will be, they they, they have to understand that history uh, and be able to turn it on its ear and use it to their advantage. I think uh, uh, the the owner, David Tepper, for the Panthers, just found this out the hard way. He came in in 2018 and try to change it all analytical, let's do it this way, let's do it that way. And it took him three years or so to realize, I can't do it that way. There's a culture already here. I need to dig into that culture and make it better as opposed to just bringing in a brand new culture. So that might be part of the reason why Jordan sticks around, the culture aspect of it. But I don't think that decision-making-wise, he would have any part of that anymore if he sells it out. I mean, this is going to be an impossible question for you to answer, but do you think... (laughs) For the Charlotte Hornets basketball team on the court, that Michael Jordan selling the team is a good thing. Knowing what we know now, which is not very much. <laughs> yeah, uh, it depends. Um, yeah, that's that's it fair. Depends. It depends is a very fair answer. I mean, it just depends on the mentality of these guys coming in. If they're just coming in to make money, like mm. this is an investment, then it's going to be the same thing we've seen for the past decade. Because to me, that's how Jordan's treated the Hornets. He's treated it more as an investment than you know, wanting to spend whatever to get a ring. Like, I think he said it in an interview a couple of years ago, how the NBA has changed and you got to, 
you have to spend so much money in order to even compete for a ring and the small market teams can't do that and it was clearly he was talking about the hornet so I, he kind of thought then he was already thinking okay there's no clear path for me to get there other than luck in the draft um and we've seen <laughs> how luck has treated the hornets in the draft uh the past decade since he's on the team other than lamello so I, yeah it just depends on if they get the right people in here and if they can surround lamello like uh, pretty much everybody on the roster other than lamello and maybe mark williams can be moved to be honest. Like they can redo this whole thing around Lamelo. And what happens in the draft this year? They get a top three pick uh, with those ping pong balls, and can land Victor Wimbayama or Scoot Henderson or Brandon Miller to put in the backcourt with Lamelo for the next decade. Yeah. Now you're cooking with grease. That's something different. Now you can really build around that with Mark Williams up front. That's something you can build on in a, in a let's face it, a fairly open Eastern Conference going forward. So. Uh, my official answer, it's, it's depend, it depends, but it depends on what happens in the draft and it depends on whether or not the new owners come in with the intent to actually win a title as opposed to winning their uh, bank statements. Absolutely. How much money they put into this franchise is going to be important. And because it's like with Steve Barmer, like there, he's a mega rich millionaire. You can look on a piece of paper. How much money does Steve Barmer have? Uh, you can still do the same with like Tillman Fatata, who's the Houston Rockets owner. Um, like you, you can do that with some people. With these guys, it is a a, a whatever a cohort of investors where there yeah. are two co-governors. It is like shady. No one has a clue like how much money there is. So that's that's a real question. Um, I, I would be I'd feel much more comfortable if it is a David Tepper type where like you know where the book stops and and you don't necessarily know how that's going to be the case, which is always. Just like concerning because you know less, right? There's, there seems to be less accountability. You can get like infighting that happened in Atlanta where Richard Chanel was a previous uh, minority owner. Yeah. There is like infighting there and like trying to push different people in and out of the front office and all. it all got weird. Like you have that kind of lack of central leadership. Like in sports sometimes having a SAR, having a dictator can be like a good thing because you at least have like a firm sense of direction. And there's no like space for gray area. I think the other thing as well is just, and this is the biggest thing for me is I really hope the nepotism will go. And this is something I've been on since I was writing about the Hornets when I was 16 years old is I was fed up time and time again, how you just read these players ending up coming to Charlotte, these staff moves that get made and these people working with the organization and they're, they're never getting moved because they're people MJ trusts. And I, I don't blame him for not trusting people. Like he has got a lot of people who want to take advantage of various things. Oh, he's got um, a tight circle. He always, I mean. Absolutely. And yeah, I, I, I don't blame him, but that doesn't always make a conducive to an effective, like running an effective NBA basketball team. And like, that's the biggest thing for me is to try and like modernize with analytics, staffing, um, trying to you know bring some different people who don't necessarily all then go play golf together like every single weekend together. That's the thing that I'm think I would be most looking forward to because I still think like you can't run away from the accusation accusations of nepotism. They are on the paper when you look at the staffing structure, and I think between that and how much money they put in, those are going to be the key things here. To like once I get some clarity on those, I'll I'll feel better about what the situation is going to be yeah great players typically don't become great coaches or owners um i was sitting there racking my brain trying to think of 
uh, guys who were like at the top level of their sport and then tried to go into coaching or ownership or something. And it actually worked out. Uh, Larry Bird with the Pacers coaching. He, I mean, he didn't win any rings or anything, but he was a pretty good coach. Red Arbuck, would he be one like, like well, back he in the day? A, he wasn't a, uh, a he wasn't like a, a player, was player. he? Yeah. He was a coach so, like, that went into GMing. I was, yeah. was kind of thinking more like, um, and I, I just forgot it. <laughs> it was so I had on, on my mind. I was like, oh, that kind of works. But other than him, that there's nobody. Else. Oh, Jerry West. Jerry West is the mm. only one I can think of that excel, excelled in a front office role after being a you know a top three, top four player in his era or whatever. Um, Jordan. I don't know if anybody ever really expected him to become a a a, a, a hands-on ring-winning general manager slash owner like. He's he was almost too good. Like if, if you if you were allowed to watch Jordan play, his playing style, he had to be coerced into running the triangle and and winning. You know, other than it just being all on his back. So I could see him wired as a guy that thinks he has to kind of see every candidate, uh, hire every person, look at every rookie, talk to all. You know, at first, and then when he brought in Mitch Kupchak, who uh, he knows through Carolina, they went to school together. Or Mitch was a little a couple years ahead of him, but he knows that Mitch built the Lakers the Kobe yeah. uh, Gasol Lakers. So uh, bringing him over, somebody he trusts from the Carolina family, that was him letting go a little bit. And the only yeah. problem is really the Hornets have had a rash of injuries the past three years. Uh, I did not agree with them releasing Borrego last year. I thought it was a year or two early. I, I still don't understand why they did it, considering they were in the same situation going into this year with the roster. Mm. Um, they've made some issues with that. Maybe that's why they brought back Steve Clifford because they knew the sale was going to happen. Maybe they were trying to maybe consciously bottom out safe pair of hands, right? Reliable. Makes again, another track. like yeah. Mitch Kupchak even said this in the interview, like Steve Clifford wasn't even on the list until Michael brought him up. <laughs> he basically yeah. said that like, what you know, <laughs> and, and this is, this is the thing with Michael. Like he, he doesn't seem he's seemingly from a distance from what I understand is like not involved day to day. But then it comes to the draft and free agency and head coach hiring, and he's like there in the room and making decisions. And mm -hmm. it's like that helicoptering in when you've not been in the day to day is like I think that you can get dangerous there because you you come in with a lot of assumptions. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, it was a good point. That's a, and that's probably well what you just described. That's really been the problem with the Hornets. It's been. Go stop, go stop. How about they've made like two playoff appearances the whole time that he's on the team yeah. or something like that in 13 they had the, Yeah, they had the Miami, uh, played Miami both times, lost four. No, they yeah. play, played Orlando one year. Um, then they played, I want to say, Miami. I think it was twice, Miami. Yeah. Got swept once. And then I remember they, Wayne Wade was still playing with the Heat when. Yeah, they went they to seven saw. games for one of them. Yeah. I, I think the, uh, the one thing I, I will say, like, everyone says that he only like hires old school people. He has tried to go different. Like he hired Rich Cho, yeah. Mr. Ex lawyer, like super smart, Mr. Analytics, like is the most anti classic old school basketball person you'll find. Blowing money like a drunken sailor. Just, he, just, he yeah, just it went, it went absolutely terribly. He hired Mike Dunlap, you know, like not a big well-known coach, a division. He was like coming off division three school and he'd like coach one year at St. John's or something like, he, he's tried to do things differently. Borrego, the young up-and-coming coach development. And I, I, none of those things have played off. It, it's always, and then he falls back to the tried and tested in the end, Steve Clifford, Mitch Kupchak, like old school basketball minds who, who when Michael calls up and has a conversation, 
they probably agree with a lot of his points of view and how he views the game. And like everyone has the unconscious bias. You surround yourself, sometimes surrounding yourself with people who have very similar views on things. Yeah, that can mean everyone's on the same page, but having neurodiversity can be a good thing. And that's like proven in a lot of business places that you having a lot of different conflicting views can lead to better quality outcomes because you you don't have as many blind spots, right? Yeah. So, yeah. That's what it's, Barkley said. That, that's why him and Jordan aren't friends to this day because that's li- what you just said is literally what Charles Barkley said on national TV like 10 years ago, whatever, that he doesn't have enough men in the room to tell him no. He's got a bunch of yes men. So every decision he makes is going to be like, oh, great, Michael. Good, Michael. That's a good decision, Michael. Like there's no one there to tell him, well, why don't we look at this or why don't we look at that? And that's really been the history of the Hornets the past decade or so. So to answer your original question, yeah, I guess I am ready for <laughs> for him to go ahead and let somebody else have a time with this because I'm, I'm tired of the Hornets not winning <laughs> like they've won one playoff series i think in their history or whatnot like they've never been and it, a new owner might not solve it but it brings hope right and yeah. that's what nba and fan bases who are unsuccessful live on we live on hope um that things can get better and you know it, it doesn't go unnoticed the various strays that you know jordan has caught as an owner from national nba media who are linked in which probably have more access to stuff that they won't share publicly but like it gives you an idea to some of the behind the scenes stuff. Um, absolutely. I, I, I'm going to kind of get us off here. So any kind of like final thoughts from you, Des, in terms of anything else on this Jordan ownership situation? Uh, everybody cross your fingers, pray to whomever uh, that we get a top three pick, because to me, this is a critical juncture in Hornets history. If they don't do this, then the talk of the Lamelo watch will begin in terms of, uh, is he going to leave? Is he going to leave? Because the NBA is turning to a turnstile at this point where stars don't have to stay where they want to, where they are. They, they can force themselves to get to wherever they're going to be. And if LaMelo and the Ball family decide that they don't like what's going on in Charlotte and they want him to move someplace else or get him to L.A. or whatever, you're going to start hearing those rumblings after the draft, depending on what happens in the draft. They can pair him up with a young guy in that backcourt for the next 10 years and then trade off Terry Rozier. That's probably the best interest of everyone that's a Hornets fan so the draft super important the sale super important uh and then what LaMelo plans to do over the next two years will be important too so everyone just cross your fingers draft coming up first and that might be able to affect a lot of dominoes last thing for me um if you want to learn a little bit more about one of the new Hornets coders I suggest you watch the we eat the rich uh documentary on Netflix which covers the GameStop saga and I don't know. I watched this probably like sometime in lockdown. Um, but uh, at some point, you will meet Gabe Plotkin, <laughs> who is one of the incumbent owners. And it's just, it's a really interesting documentary just generally. But now knowing that there is like a tangential Hornets link into it, it's uh, even more super interesting. And it gives you a sense of some of the, the, let's just say, the questionable goings on that happened that may or may not have involved his former firm uh, Melvin Capital, which had to be shut down and liquidated. So um, I definitely suggest you watch that because uh, that might give you some concerns, but it is, it is interesting. Um, But yeah, I I have to say, I definitely have some like, I I don't understand how someone who had to like liquidate his company because of like nine lawsuits is now buying an MBA team. I I don't, (laughs) I don't know how we quite get from point A to point B, but 
it's a capitalist world and it's happened. <laughs> so whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Uh-huh. Anyway, Des, well, thanks for joining on, jumping on here to talk uh, Jordan and the Hornets ownership. And uh, have you got any more Swarm reports coming out anytime soon? I don't think so. They're actually towards the end of their season. Yeah, they're I think finishing their up now, ends, aren't they? Yeah, I think their season ends this week. Um, well, maybe we, we jump on to maybe do a, a recap podcast for the Swarm season, maybe, once the once the season comes to an end. That'd be a good thing yeah. to do. Yeah, possibly. You can do something along those lines. And then uh, we talk. We'll, we'll have some stuff in the offseason uh, that we'll do in podcast format that'll be pretty cool, too, for uh, Hornets fans. So um, there'll always be – we'll have something coming out. So – you know guys just keep an eye out for all the stuff that all of us have been doing yeah all right well thanks for coming on and we will speak to you next week